0: Welcome everyone to this podcast around the theme Diversity, Equity and Inclusion powered by InnoFlow. My name is Caroline Hartstedt and I have the pleasure of being the host today. I'm the founder of FutureTalent.dk, I have a former career from Novo Nordisk as a people and organization director and then some of you may know me as the host of TEDx Copenhagen Future of Work online series. But I'm not alone here today. Luckily I'm here with uh, a good friend of mine, Annelise who is, uh, you can say, an advocate for diversity, equity and inclusion, also known as DEI. She's an ambassador, a pioneer, a person that has been speaking up for the past decades about this very important theme, been speaking up where others have not been raising their voice. You've really been a role model when we talk about moving the needle on diversity, equity and inclusion. So I'm really uh, excited to have you here and I'm going to do a short introduction of you, Lisa because you have had a really impressive career uh, working with big corporations uh, throughout uh, the past many years. And uh, I think that what characterizes you is that you really have a passion on bringing the best out in people, no matter where you are. Right now you are acting as the Chief HR Officer at Mass Tankers. You've also had a long career in Nordisk where I had the pleasure to work together with you, and you've also been in companies like Confrero, um, Nordea and other big companies beyond your own company. That you also uh, worked as an independent consultant for some years, and uh, yeah, you're sharing your sharing your words of wisdom in in different boards and really uh, being out there and and uh, changing the way we see it, uh, diversity, uh, equity and inclusion. So I'm really excited to have you here. But uh, before we kind of dig into the talk about this very exciting topic, I think it would be nice to just uh, check in with you and Lisa and, and hear what you're doing uh, today
1: uh, work-wise. Well, thanks for the introduction. It's almost a little embarrassing to sit here and hear so many nice words about myself. But thank you, Carolina and it's been a pleasure working with you throughout the years and connecting on this topic at certain points. And then, as you said, today, what am I doing? You asked the question. Today, you mentioned I'm the head of HR at Merce Tankers, which is a great job where I have end-to-end HR responsibility for the company, but nonetheless, I think DEI burns closely to my heart, has always done so, and I think whatever role, the worlds you mentioned at different companies, I've always had my finger on that topic regardless Mm -hmm. of what I've done. Yeah. So that's where I am today, so yeah. it's still close to my heart and it's still one of the key strategic priorities for the company and also for myself.
0: Yeah, because I think that you've know, really been driving the agenda even before it was on the agenda, if you can say it like that. So maybe you want to share with us where does this come from? What, why do you have such a strong opinion and passion about this, uh, this topic?
1: But I mean, uh, it's a great question because uh, you know it's not necessarily a career move that I went after. It's rather a career move that found me. Yeah, and I think that's because you know if you talk about there must be something when when a career move finds you, there must be something in your background to which it connects. And I think if I go all the way back to childhood, as do many of these early experiences, I think I come from a diverse place. Yeah, and you may not know that by looking at me because it's not always you know some types of diversity are you know the the less visible ones. Mm. But I think going back to my early roots, I grew up as what you could say a little bit of an oddity in the community where I was raised. And maybe you could hear from my accent that I'm from the US still, despite living in Denmark 25 (laughs) years. But I grew up in New Hampshire and was the product of a Danish mother, therefore the name Annalisa. And then Goldstein, my surname, is a Jewish American father. And what was interesting about that pairing is we were the only ones of our type in the town where I grew up, which was a pretty homogenous Christian small town in New Hampshire. And I think pretty early on, not necessarily as a kid, but as I reached sort of early adolescence, I started to realize how different that was. And from, and I think, personal experiences about particularly my last name being one Mm -hmm. that was easily identifiable. So I think in my early years, and also particularly in high school years, I had, had, can come with lots of examples of mm-hmm. sort of experiencing anti-Semitism yeah. and feeling like what that, sort of being on the receiving end of that mm-hmm. and what it feels like to be judged for something that you don't really understand before someone even knows you. Yeah. People have a lot of biases that, that, you know, that, that, that are the lens by which they interact yeah. with you. Yeah. So I think some of that early stuff and then l- learning how to navigate that yeah. I mean, no, understanding it, getting an early understanding about how it plays out, and also some strategies about how do you integrate that into mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, you know, some of the challenges we face, we develop some good coping mechanisms with that or some insights yeah. that if you were maybe part of a majority group, you wouldn't necessarily have those. Some mm. of those things would be invisible to you. Yeah. So and I think that's, that's some of the very early childhood stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and then some of my career choices along the way are academic studies connected to that interest, so when I went to university, I was studied the field of social policy, and that was really trying to understand how sort of organizations or systems create the right context for mm-hmm. people to thrive economically or socially. Yeah. And so, so I think it's very much in my roots.
0: And I think when you, when you tell that story, I mean, it's really connected the dots to where you are today, because I think that you once told me that your ambition or your motto or what kind of kept got you up in the morning was to that the thinking that we can always do better. Yeah. So maybe you want to share a little bit on how does, how does that how is that connected to, to DEI that uh, we can always do better? What's what's why is it so important that we have DEI on the, the agenda?
1: Yeah, so I don't remember I told you that was my motto. So, but but it is my but it is very well much integrated into the way I see things, and I think that's why I love this topic and so much, and also strategic area because we can always do better, yeah. despite having been in this field for so long, studying about it, you know, sort of be doing hands-on work in economically deprived areas or coming into corporate life, regardless, we can always do better. And I think even though I know a lot about this topic, I'm always amazed by how much I don't know. And in terms of what more we can learn, what more we can try. And in terms of the people side, one part that has always been critically important to me is the potential of people. And when you look at organizations where somehow people are not able to bring their best selves to work, or they feel hindered in some way, yeah. or they feel yeah. that you know, their professional ambitions can't be realized, somehow we're not doing the best yeah. that we can yeah. as organizations or as people, sort of enabling yeah. the success of other yeah. people. So that's why I and think that there's always something more you can do. The work is never finished yeah. in this yeah. way.
0: Yeah. And you have really been through that whole evolution on from you know, 15 years ago, when you first, that's how I remember it, and you can correct me if yeah. I'm wrong, but I really remember you you know, being on different stages in Novo Nordisk, talking about the importance of diversity in teams and bringing the best out of everyone, even though we had different gender, different backgrounds, different nationalities. Maybe you can share with us, because I know there's a a lot of different views on this topic, but maybe you can share a little bit of a historical evolution, because we started with only the diversity and then it became DNR and and now it's DEI, And you've been through that journey so can you put a little bit more on what what happened on the on the whole uh, discussion about this yeah what all the letters yeah yeah
1: yeah so i think we started off talking about diversity at least when i came into the field and it was still pretty new actually before i came to denmark in 96. ironically i mean i actually had a few connections with diversity that i was doing a research project where we looked at a bank in philadelphia that was. I think this must have been in '94. They were among the first to undertake a diversity initiative and had hired a consultant to come in. Wow. So that was when things got started. Yeah. So by the time we, I hit Nordisk, which was in 2005, I mean Nordisk had been working with diversity for some time, mostly inspired by their U.S. affiliate, yeah. but was starting to get their, you know, hands around what does this actually mean. It was a little bit still of an American concept, but nonetheless it was, I think, Nova North was on the forefront in terms of really stepping out and taking on this agenda. Yeah, yeah. At that time, diversity meant two dimensions of diversity. It meant primarily gender, yeah. and then it meant to some degree nationality, but I mean gender was really in the focus. And the focus of most diversity initiatives was about the numbers. Yeah. Setting targets, increasing the number of women or other minorities, but primarily women in different leadership teams, decision-making positions, and basically doing some counting. It came a little bit at it from a political angle, mm. looking at making policies, practices, handbooks, guidelines, and then doing some sort of measurement and having a little bit more of a compliance mindset around it. Yeah. So that's where it started. Yeah. But then I think the next evolution was around, instead of it was diversity, it became called. It was called diversity and inclusion. Yeah. And the realization at that point was you could maybe get the numbers right. You could focus your interventions on isn't hiring or promoting, but rather if the culture was the same, Mm. then ultimately either these women or other minority groups, underrepresented groups you would bring in, would be people that were similar because they could survive in those contexts or that ultimately some of those people would end up leaving. And I so you I, get like a
0: you get like a female in a, a female in a,
1: version who acting maybe, like
0: a man or or,
1: or, act, or being very similar in the way they saw the world similar values similar education yeah. similar viewpoints so they might be a woman yeah. but basically they came from pretty similar backgrounds if you studied the same thing at CBS and yeah. you had the same professors and you came from the same community. Yeah. How different do you really think yeah. just because you're a man yeah. or a woman? Yeah. So, some of the, so you could saw that some of the results weren't necessarily the, the, the impact your, that you wanted one to one have expenses. wasn't yeah. brought about. Or those who really were different, they didn't survive that long yeah. because the culture didn't support them being there. Yeah. And, and also, when, you know, there's some, been, there has also been a focus on sort of the critical mass, the 30% or whatever, the critical level to actually turn a culture. But what, whether, whatever the number is, if there is something to this cultural piece. Yeah. Yeah. Are people really listening to different points yeah. of view? Are yeah. they open to dissenting yeah. points? Yeah. Do they basically want to continue with what they've always known? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a culture of inquiry? We actually listen and question. Yeah. So all of these parts were also this, this inclusion element, the behavioral element, was yeah. seen as equally as important. Yeah. And in fact, some companies began reversing it. So it was I and D instead of D and I to really emphasize okay. that there's the, the cultural piece came before the representation. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a whole that was sort of the next phase where that that the behave, the structural and the behavioral really went hand in yeah, hand. Yeah. And you couldn't have one without the other. Yeah. And then the new part yeah. that you've you mentioned, the DEI, that's yeah. the equity piece. Yeah. yeah. And that's also an important development because I think sometimes when you put diversity initiatives in place, you get there's many forms of, you know, sort of critique or resistance that come. And one of those is that, OK, are you now creating reverse discrimination? If you do something special for women or people of color yeah. or, or economically um, challenged groups, are you not just creating the opposite effect? Mm-hmm. And that's where equity comes into play, where it emphasizes that the playing field is not equal, mm. so despite the fact that that means so that, so reverse discrimination is not a real challenge in the sense that people don't come to the table having had the same life life situations and the same advantages, mm. so maybe you need to do something extra to bring to bring people up to speed or rethink rather than getting them to fit into the the mold, yeah. maybe change the mold yeah because you you can't expect that people will sort of catch up in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, you mentioned that I had been in Corn Ferry, in it, where I wasn't a headhunter myself, but executive search was there. And that was one of the developments in executive search, where if you keep putting emphasis on experience,
0: mm-hmm. number
1: of years of experience or the type of experience you have, you're always going to disadvantage some of the more diverse candidates yeah. because they won't measure you know, measure up exactly they might not have had the same life experience. Yeah. So you need to start looking at other qualities whether it's potential or yeah. competencies yeah. rather than these CVs with all the the long list of everything you've done and who you've known. Yeah. That becomes the, that they will you will never get sort of diverse populations yeah. or be be more challenging if you expect it to be a one-to-one match. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's pretty radical for some. The idea that some doing something extra for one population is not disadvantaging the majority no. population yeah. yeah
0: and I think when you when you explain that whole evolution and also you can say the pitfalls of why diversity could not stand alone, yeah. um, there's been a lot of discussion on bias, unconscious bias. I know that a lot of a lot of companies are doing. Significant effort in trying to change that by educating the yeah. employees to be more aware of their biases and stuff like that. How do you, as a company, uh, prepare or create a culture where there's focus on this in a in a in a not so structured way? Because I think a lot of companies are also doing it to an extent where it doesn't become natural or a part of how we, how we work uh,
1: yeah naturally.
0: Yeah. It can be a little bit stiff sometimes. I feel that okay now we need to have it on our strat- strategic focus. Now we need to have a specific quota and targets. But how do you work with the buyers and the unconscious buyers in a, in a big corp, uh, corporation to make sure that you drive the DEI uh, agenda?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I know that a lot of companies they sort of have added on this bias piece, and I think yeah. there's nothing wrong with all the bias training because one of the things that I think it does do is give a shared language, mm. and I and I like you know I don't there are many different approaches to it, but I like the ones that start with the, sort of the opening that if you have a brain you're biased because it then takes away the shame yeah. that all of us are biased. It's a way we process information, and mm. I think Kahneman was good instead sort of looking at yeah. you know thinking with, thinking one and thinking two, looking at you yeah. know, system one and system two, yeah. looking at yeah. that we have to categorize information yeah. in faster ways or we can be cognitively more sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. So I think putting a language on it is really really helpful. Mm. Raising awareness that we're all biased and that it's not something we do because we're bad people. Mm. I, mean, I think that one of the things for me that's really important about DEI is our taking shame away. Mm. Because if it ends up being that shameful that you did something wrong or pointing fingers and wanting to move blame around. Yeah. I think that's really harmful yeah. and that I've seen yeah. where I put sort of men in power have felt attacked at some level because they did something wrong. Yeah. And I think that doesn't get you where you want to go, no. which is a little bit where the new concept of allyship comes in. Yeah. We're kind of all in this together. If yeah. you want systemic change, everybody participates. Yeah. Yeah. But back to your bias question. And I think you know good as a starting point because you get a shared language and understanding mm. but I think all the research on bias shows that education doesn't doesn't change behavior no. so just knowing about bias doesn't mean that you behave or think differently yeah. so you need to have structural interventions to support that yeah. and I think that uh, and it's also something you can't do as an individual yeah. so the most powerful interventions in the bias field is once you've educated people with the shared language and that they you know that people that there's a legitimacy around the topic, then coupled with interventions where in groups and teams where you actually allow yourself to challenge one another or to put in sort of pause and reflect moments yeah. or alternative points of view, having someone who's a fly on the wall who might come in and challenge, observe and challenge because all the research shows you can't do it without a structural process yeah. to support. Yeah. So some of these boards where you have different views, and you look at candidates, and you bring in different types of, um, sort of evaluators, I think yeah. those things are powerful. You're talking about like a recruitment in, in, in panel. in recruitment panels yeah. or promotion panels. Yeah. And I mean, I think those are important. Yeah. Because as soon as things go fast and we're under pressure, and you need to make this quick hiring decision, you fall back to yeah. what you always know. Yeah. So just because you've done this great intervention doesn't mean that under pressure things don't fall back, because yeah. that is the, you know, the, the system one thinking. We fall, we yeah. fall back to our yeah. automatic patterns. Yeah. So rather than it being bad, we know what happens as human beings. Yeah. So how do we support ourselves yeah. in behaving differently yeah. or raising it up to the more strategic yeah. thinking?
0: Because I think it's very much linked to behaviors that then we just do what we did.
1: Yeah, and there's the nothing wrong with know. that. I mean, and I think that we're not bad people because we do that. That is how we we behave under pressure, yeah. or when we need to get a lot done, or yeah. when you're in a situation we need to hire, and you sort of want you. There's a tendency to be risk averse yeah. if it's a difficult situation, yeah. etc. So I think just knowing that that is our tendency, yeah. therefore, yeah. we need to do something extra, yeah. be proactive yeah. if we want it to be different.
0: And how do you? I mean, do you have some examples, or what would companies where you think, okay, they really did some of these structural interventions where you could really see that it created a movement in the organizations to become a more DEI-focused uh, organization?
1: I mean, I think people always ask that question, that's like yeah. the million-dollar question, which company they want can you point, nuggets, yeah, that, yeah. which company can you point to that has really done something yeah. remarkable? And I think there are many that have done different remarkable things in their own right. And I think that it's not necessarily the huge mothership interventions where they have every flashy, shiny diversity program. Where I have seen it really, and it could be in startups, it can be, I mean, it can be in any size company. Where I've seen it be really powerful is that if you have some really passionate senior people, yeah. that if you have a, a CEO, if you have an executive group that really wants something and they speak, they speak the, the, they put it into words, and then it's consistent with the action. And yeah. so it doesn't have to be, and I, mean, and I think you know, we've talked about that before. You, I mean, if, if you don't you know, walk, you know, walk the talk and all yeah. of that, but, but it is ultimately important, no matter what you choose, yeah. just do it really well. Yeah. And I think you know, one of the jokes we used to make in the old days around diversity was you know, that if companies were just doing it to do it, it was like, okay, diversity is the answer, but what was the question? Yeah. And I think know what the, know what the <laughs> yeah, <that's>, yeah. <laughs> but know what the, I mean know what, what it is that you're really trying to solve. Yeah. I mean it's like HR. Yeah. I mean someone was asked me the other day, you know, what is the best HR practice? Well, it totally matters. Most impactful HR practices. It totally matters what the problem is you're trying to solve. You can't yeah. say talent development's great if that's not your challenge. I mean yeah. really understanding what is it that you want to do with this organization. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when you have a, a senior person or a senior group that is has really thought about how does this make sense for us as a business, yeah. for our culture, for our own values, yeah. for whatever purpose we hold, and then what are those few meaningful things we really want to do? Yeah. So I think there's my answer. Yeah, it's focusing on those few really, really meaningful things yeah. that you want to do, and then also the, and that becomes a cultural intervention. Yeah. Yeah. because if you ha- and then I think in involving you know the your employees in in the organization involving your your middle managers, frontline leaders, but yeah. basically focusing in on those very few impactful, connecting it to business values, culture, purpose, and then people understand you know why is it that we 're doing yeah. what we're doing, and it makes sense yeah. when you, when you start implementing policies that you know, out of all good intention come from a ministry or some regulatory yeah. body. But it just doesn't make sense in people's no. everyday life. Yeah. It generally doesn't take traction. No, it's really that you know. Does this make that we do we all get why we're doing this? Yeah,
0: and I think that whole uh, philosophy or what you how you want to f- frame it is, is is so important. And and that kind of takes us a little bit away from the this, the easier discussions on. Well, if we want to change it, we can just just do specific qu- targets or quotas or and then kind of make that drive the change. But what what is your you can say opinion on boards, senior leadership positions, uh that most of them today I think we don't harm anyone by saying but the majority of these boards and, and executive management uh, leadership teams and big corporations, they are still uh driven mainly by men. Yeah. So I mean, you've also been exposed to probably a lot of discussions on whether or not to use uh, quotas and uh, and specific targets on gender and nationality. But what's your what's your opinion on, on this? Is it and working voted, or...?
1: I mean, but you can say, I mean, if it's about changing the numbers, it is working in some places. I mean, you can change board compo- composition by legislating or executive group composition by legislating. You can. And I mean, and I'm not against it per se. But never alone, because I just don't think that drives the cultural change back yeah. to the inclusion piece—that it has to be coupled with a lot of other things. I mean, to to really build the right context around yeah. it. But not, but I mean, I think going back to the critical mass question—I mean, a point there is something around that. Yeah. That when you get if you have all these you know sort of um, you know the the tokens here and there. Yeah. I mean it, that doesn't drive the cultural change necessarily. So it is about getting some critical mass of difference. And I can see that when it happens. I can see that in the teams where I've been a part of, where you really do have a diverse composition of people. It changes the way you interact with one another. You don't make assumptions. You don't use sort of language without being conscious of it because you know that other people around the table might not understand the same cultural cues. So it raises the consciousness about what you talk about, how you talk about it, what you think about, who the stakeholders are. And then, and then, you know, the uh, critique of that has always been, oh, but, you know, then we have to be politically correct, and then we're going to be stiff, we can't be natural. Yeah. And I don't think that's right. No. I think you just increase your consciousness about <laughs> what is the impact that you have on other human beings. Yeah. And when you're with people who are very much like you, you don't think about it. Yeah. You just sort of behave sort of spontaneously, but that might not necessarily be the right way. Yeah. Maybe this Going back to Kahneman, the level two, I mean, being more conscious about what yeah. you do yeah. can be more impactful. Yeah. So I, I, I'm all for um, increasing consciousness rather than just legislating numbers, yeah. but they go hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's the nudging or the pushing that companies need to take action.
0: Yeah, and I think going back to what you said, you know, walk the talk, that, you know, today a lot of, we see a lot of people talk a lot about what they want to do. And then we see that there are still no really changes on the on the data or the, the yeah. numbers. I mean, you've been in different settings with Conferi, Novo Nordisk, uh, Nordea, and now um, mass tankers. What are what are the some of the you can say common mistakes or pitfalls that you need to be aware of when you start to zoom in on on this? If it's something that you want to change in the in the company, what? What's a good starting point, or what do you need to be aware of?
1: I mean, I think the important part is that there's no easy fix. I mean, and I think that there's a lot of companies that get discouraged. You had mentioned that the numbers aren't changing. Okay, they're doing all this stuff, and then the numbers don't seem to move. And I don't think that's anything to be discouraged about, because it is complex. So you can, if you really want to change the numbers, you can do a, a bunch of symbolic hires either sort of bring people in from the outside or promote which could be I mean it's not you're bringing in other competencies I don't mean symbolic hires in the sense yeah. of these, these people the people you're bringing are not really competent but more just taking action yeah. I and mean, taking just do it yeah. I mean I think that's my current boss yeah he I'm sitting in a management team which was all men now we're two women yeah. from different industries than shipping yeah. so he just took action he just yeah. did it and then, you know, still talk, his point is always stop talking about it, just do it. Yeah. You, know, where, you know, make these bold, iconic moves and just do it. Yeah, and I think, and and a that great is, signal to the yeah, and rest and of the That's a signal, organization. and I think that's incredibly important, going back to the sort of the passionate CEO or the passionate executive group. Yeah. But that's not enough, because that's just some passion. You may just have some passionate people on the top, but yeah. that doesn't necessarily drive the cultural change. No. So you need to do some of this systemic stuff yeah. too, yeah. that you look at a lot of your processes, I mean many people are looking at their recruitment processes yeah, yeah. are they biased in terms of who are they bringing in yeah. you might look at the, are your risk willingness to promoting talents yeah. that's something I've really worked a lot with yeah. which is and, and it's an intervention I've done with a lot of executive groups asking them you know, what has been the mo- asking them the question what has been most important for your own career or who has been most important yeah. for your career yeah. they've most often mentioned the same things that somebody saw talent in them that they didn't see themselves, yeah. and somebody promoted them before they were ready and was yeah. there to support them. Yeah. And then you ask the other question, how many are you doing it for? How many yeah. would put you on their list? Yeah, yeah. And as soon as you get into these um, roles, you tend to be less risk willing, yeah. but it's always the risks that, that help people at critical points in their careers. Yeah. So I think one thing from the talent perspective yeah. is taking more risks on people, yeah. promoting people before they're ready. Yeah. And when, now we've just done that recently in Merce Tangers and the guy we promoted before, he was ready of a different mas- national, national background, yeah. he's just perf- blossomed and performing yeah. way beyond expectations. Yeah. Yeah. But had we taken the safe route, we would have brought in an external yeah. candidate. Yeah. And I think those things, you can really, that, that can be cultural interventions yeah. where we just uh, systemically challenge ourselves because if you give people a chance, they tend, ambitious, smart people Given an opportunity beyond their reach, they tend to reach that point, yeah. and not sink or swim. Rather, you support them yeah. along the way. Yeah. I think those are some of the things. And that today, I think with, are the, really with the
0: times that we are in right now, with the great attrition and people resigning, I think it's a really good opportunity. Yeah to take those risks. I don't, I don't even think it's like risk because if you are It's
1: not. Trust it's, it's perceived as a risk. You yeah. feel it's a risk, but yeah. as I said, the chances are that somebody who's ambitious and smart will live up to the challenges you yeah. put before them. It's pretty high. Yeah. They've done that for most yeah. of their career.
0: Yeah. But I think also when you look back, back at especially recruitment and succession management, I mean I always make the analog to recruitment and, and, the, and school photos. I mean I see <laughs> some of the same changes that we have seen in school photos, you know, looking back a hundred years, still have the small kids sitting on the first road, the <laughs> middle one in the middle, and then the high one in the back. The The change that we have seen in recruitment is, is more or less the same. I mean, I know I'm provoking some people yeah. now, but I, I we still have the cover letter, we still have the CV, we still have the traditional interviews. And I think that if we don't change that status quo and kind of rethink the way we do job ads and the way we recruit and the way we screen and search, yeah. I think it's, it's uh, uh, you tell me, I think it's difficult to break that behavior or pattern that we have seen. And maybe you want to share some stuff that you do in MERS Tankers to kind of yeah. shake that boat a little bit and, and do things in a different way to, to break the pattern of not recruiting like we always did.
1: But that's, uh, thanks for that question, because that's really what we're trying to do now differently, which are the cultural interventions. And recruiting is one of them, Yeah. because I've just been, my boss has been complaining to me quite a bit about how long our recruitments take. Yeah. And if you look at a startup, I mean, we, we started a recruitment yeah. where we already knew who we wanted to hire because we were using network, but then it took two months to go through all the process. Yeah. Like, why the heck is that happening when you see startups that can hire like that? Yeah. Yeah. So challenging some of the corporate processes yeah. that slow things down. And why are they slowing things down? Because we want to be diligent and we want to check and we want to do all the same old stuff. But you're yeah. right, that reinforces yeah. the same old patterns. We have a lot of legacy procedures in HR yeah. or, and, and business-wise. But we're really trying to simplify and cut everything out. Yeah. So we're going through all of our processes right now, limited, in one case, li- linked to employee experience but linked to also the business, yeah. looking at need to, nice to and differentiators. Okay. So basically anything that is in the nice to category should be wiped out. Yeah. If it if it is not a need to, for example, payroll, yeah. <laughs> you know, compliance oriented things, so um, you know, some of the hiring, if it's if, if it's if it's not in that space where it's just making the machine run, yeah. it should be a differentiator.
0: Yeah.
1: All this nice to stuff and lots of HR is nice too. Yeah. It's not really differentiating <laughs> for the business or for the employee experience. So that's the challenge we're going through. And that means that we will be cutting out some, you know, some of our darlings in terms of the stuff that I think also many times is also linked to some of the bias. And And I think it's interesting that you say that, you know, you have kind of
0: done a sanity check on the time to hire, which in most companies is very long and you have it as a long because you want to make sure you do it, as you say, in the right way. But I'm also thinking about from a candidate perspective, is it really decent to wait for like two, three, four, I mean if you head headhunted, it can take like six months or a year, yeah. is that decent? Uh, so I, th- I really like, you know, that companies are wearing the pioneering hat and, yeah. and think innovatively on how can we challenge our own uh, processes and do it much more fluent and I think that sometimes these times of uh, what can you say, like challenging times as we have now with the pandemic and the war and stuff like that, that you really need to, to rethink and, um, and be faster. And scars. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Talents are, are a scarce resource yeah, yeah. now. Uh, I mean, companies like Netflix and the Danish company, Playo, they have really found their way to rethink how they post their ads, how they write it. Uh, How they invite people. Um, Mm. I mean, Netflix. They can they can offer a contract within a couple of hours. I mean, if I think about that in my time in Nobu Nordis, that would never happen. And I think that obviously there's some there's some technical systems and process and compliance and stuff like that that you are. You can say uh, locked into when you're a big comp- corporation, but I really think it's, it's much, nice less to hear. Than
1: you, much less than you think. I mean, yeah. I think that's kind of what we believe. Yeah. And it's, so it's challenging that. So, that's, so we're in the process of, you know, underneath pioneering culture is this our focus area of empowering people, going back to decision making. People like to, ele- we, you know, oftentimes senior people want to decide and other people want to elevate to, you know, then, rather than take decisions where they happen. Yeah. But empowering. And I think going back to, okay, empowering managers to hire if they think the person's good and, you know, and, and acting swiftly yeah. and not being afraid of a mistake. Okay, if you made a, a hiring error, we may have, it's better to get nine fast in one error than yeah. three really slow. I mean, sort of changing our views about tolerance for mistakes. Yeah. And that goes to this pioneering element. Startups have tolerance for mistakes, or else you don't get, get anywhere. Yeah. I mean, so we're trying to, you know, we've, the net, whether <laughs> it's the Netflix one. books or whether it's startups, we're trying to be challenged a bit by our corporate thinking. Yeah. And not, I mean, in all these things we've taken for granted, we've had decision making, matrices, yeah. why do you have one of those? Yeah. Can't you believe that people can yeah. figure out what to do and who to ask, rather yeah. than have some policy about it? Yeah. So less policy, more dialogue. Yeah. And I think going back to some of your questions about what is really powerful, you know, one of the concepts out there is psychological safety that really is a key component of having an inclusive culture. Create Rather than making policies, having dialogues about important topics. And I think sometimes people are sort of conflict-averse in organizations or we're afraid that one person will cheat, et cetera, so yeah. we develop policies or dress codes yeah. because one person doesn't dress right yeah. or whatever. Yeah. We're really trying to change some of that. And also, ask the questions why does it matter what someone wears yes. you know all these things that we thought were important really challenged them from the small stuff which is mm-hmm. visible to a lot of these policies and practices yes. and compliance yeah. which often it's a little bit this kind of the legacy we've just taken for granted that it needs to be this way yeah. it actually doesn't and also, you might not need an engagement server you might not need to have a talent nine grid you might not no. need any of these yeah. things if you look yeah. at the hr space yeah. but we've just assumed it we've been raised in this And that's where biases are things that we accept to be true, that we don't actually challenge the the assumptions under those things.
0: And I think there's so much going into that discussion about... It's kind of micromanaging, people treating them like... You, you talked about Talk it when to we... I my children? Yeah. I mean, why don't we give the responsibility and treat people like grown-ups, as you yeah. said to me the other day. And I really like that. I mean, s- things would be so much more simple yeah. if we just trust that, okay, at least you give Carolina an assignment and you trust that she's a grown-up and she can do it herself. You don't need to and have And if she needs help, memos. she'll ask me. Yeah. yeah. How, but how do you... Because I know the culture in, in mass tankers is, is, is something that you're very passionate about and I also know Christian, the CEO, is, is, is you can say, a much different generation manager than, than in other companies. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you enforce that simple thing of treating people as grown-ups? What is it that you need to take out yeah, to yeah. allow people to be themselves?
1: Even more, and again, I don't think it's simple. But I think some of the things about taking out policies about behavior, whether it's travel policies, or um, you know, that was one of the recent ones. I mean, rather than just having some principles or you know, team building policies or dress codes or ways of behaving, just assuming that people will figure figure out. Yeah. you know what's the right thing to do yeah. that people I mean maybe there's some one or two people that may inappropriately use funds but then you just address those two individuals mm-hmm. yeah and not be afraid of that rather than telling the majority of people how to behave and yeah. i think that's insulting yeah. having a travel policy is insulting because yeah. you're basically you're telling a lot of people you don't know how to behave appropriately yeah. and how you book travel yeah. or you don't know how to behave appropriately when you go out to dinner when you're traveling yeah and that's just not the case no I mean, and I so I think that, but we but we reinforce that by telling people all of these rules and employee handbooks that detail all the things they need to do. I think that's talking down to people. Yeah. I don't think it's totally less affair in terms of yeah. you te- you say nothing, but I think it's guiding principles are enough. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we are trying to implement, taking away. You know, we did a we're doing a redesign of our development dialogues, mm-hmm. rather than have it be something that a leader initiates. Now I need to talk to you. Caroline, about your development, have you made your plan? And is, are these goals smart and yeah, is it KPI's Yeah, and <laughs> basically saying you know you you own your own development, and I'm yeah. here to have meaningful to dialogues your... with you when you find that there it's the right time and place, and I'll help you to connect it, and I'll you know, through dialogue will help yeah. you to see realize where you want to go, yeah. but not mandating these behaviors, which puts kids in like the little school kid position, yeah. and then you have to document them, which shows that you know which reinforces that. There's a compliance element to these yeah. things. So those are the type of things we're trying to eliminate. Or, if, and behaviorally, if somebody comes to you and asks you for advice, say, you know what, I know you're fully capable of deciding that, so you, know, you don't need my input, yeah. and I don't even know, actually. Yeah. You know better than I know. Yeah, I think some of those small interventions. Yeah, and I think that kind of gives people the,
0: the freedom to, you know, just be themselves when they go to work and I think that what we see changing on when looking into performance management and bonus systems and KPIs and stuff like that there's definitely a movement that is starting on that part and and we also talked about that the other day that that instead of having individual performance goals you would have like team goals or even company goals Uh, what is your opinion on on having these uh, bonus structures or not having them.
1: Yeah, but I think, as you know, we just changed the bonus system in Merce Tankers from one of the more classic ones with individual ratings and bonuses attached to individual ratings and sort of bell curves, bell distribution curves, to yeah. one of sort so of... everything like
0: the five, s- the scales... The scales, etc., yeah. which
1: was more the classic, to yeah. be basically eliminating all of that and everybody being measured on company performance. So we win together, we lose together. If the company performs well, people get a nice bonus. If the company doesn't perform well, we don't get a bonus, rather than making these internal systems where I compare my performance to you, yeah. sort of reinforcing this internal competition that I'm yeah. better than you, rather yeah. than we are all on the same journey, figuring out how to bring the best out in each other for a common purpose. Yeah. So that's, part, that's another structural intervention that would hopefully bring about, reinforce the cultural change we're on. Yeah.
0: And when we talk about DEI, what are, what are some of the challenges that you see in corporations when they start to have strategies around changing the DEI? What is it that they, you often see go wrong when they, when they try to, uh, to put more
1: light on, the, on the, this topic? I think that one thing is complexity. I think that, uh, which links back to my other point, just doing a couple of things really well. Yeah. Some of these diversity strategies are really, really complex. And you can't even remember what's in them. Like, you know, sort of, I think so there's something about purpo- linking to purpose, linking to your strategy, making those few meaningful yeah. interventions so it makes sense. It's intuitive, yeah. intuitive sense. It doesn't get over-engineered. Yeah. As soon as you start to over-engineer something, which is the you know the common practice of corporate life, yeah. things get over engineered, you lose the impact. Yeah. So having those I mean powerful communicators, they have their few key messages they yeah. repeat again and again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the same with a diversity strategy. Yeah. Figuring out what you really want to do with this. Yeah. Boil it down to the essence. Yeah. Repeat that and then have the few powerful things that really connect to that and serve your bigger purpose, I mean the, the business objective. Yeah. So I think that's a really classic and I think, unfortunately, classic in HR, the things get really over-engineered. Yeah, and, and then also, they, and then people get, they get confused, and it, it seems detached from reality.
0: Yeah, and I also think with the, with that strong discourse that's going on in the media now, and people comparing, you know, what companies are doing, I also feel some companies might feel the pressure a little bit okay if they're doing that over here and they're doing that over here and they started a great initiatives, or oh, we need to do that oh, we need to do and that is adding to the complexity yeah instead of having your strategic uh, focus and then kind of tailor make your dei strategy or initiatives to that yeah
1: um,
0: and also kind of figuring out where do you see the company having the talent gaps and see how that can be lifted by, you can say, expanding your talent pipelines. Because I think that's also where DEI comes in as a great opportunity to broaden out your traditional way of, of recruiting. It does, and but,
1: but that might not be your problem, going back to the you know, going back to why is it that we're doing this. Yeah. If you don't have a talent problem, yeah. then don't link D&I to your talent yeah. approach. I mean, yeah. it, what actually is the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah. How will yeah. it serve the business or how will it serve the culture? Yeah. If you see that you have a kind of a command and control leadership style that is not conducive to bringing in younger talent and more diverse talent, then deal with your leadership style. Yeah. And, and I think the so that's whenever I'm asked, you know, who are the first movers, who are the ones that, you know, to to watch, I think you can't cut and paste somebody else's DEI strategy. No, no. You need to find out what is the unique problem you're trying to solve and figure out how to target it to that. Yeah. And not try to do everything. Yeah. And I think that's that's a pitfall. Yeah. Trying to do too much. Yeah. But if it is if you do see a talent gap or that certain you do see a high attrition of certain profiles well, then you have a problem, yeah. go in and investigate yeah. and i mean we 've had i mean i 've seen that in where we have actually a leadership problem in an area yeah. because these talents, the more innovative talents they don 't they don 't want to be in a place like yeah. that yeah. so then go in and deal with that yeah. instead of the you know the very high level big inc- you know statements, yeah. corporate statements, yeah. Yeah. we actually have analyzed yeah. what it is that we, you know, what we need to do what yeah. we need to be better at yeah. and I think value based on the inclusion agenda, I think you could say that. Humanistic psychology tells us that human beings, you know, want to be seen and valued and treated with respect. Yeah, these are some fundamentals. Yeah, but and I think on top of that, I think you know, having the culture that people feel that way and feel there's a sense of meaning and purpose. We know this to be true from all the research. That's yeah. where people thrive. Yeah. On top of that, you know, how is this? You know, where are the challenges that will better serve the business? Yeah.
0: yeah. And I think that also goes back to what you mentioned about having a working environment with psychological safety which I think that would that would solve so many problems because <laughs> people would not have to wear their mask going to work and they could just be themselves but I think we also need to acknowledge that it's not like that all places and you know water runs downwards and if you have a management board that might Say that this is what they want to do, but they don't walk the talk as we. Yeah, yeah. Are. So how do you? And I mean, for you, you're such a strong ambassador and pioneer within this, but and have a lot of story, history behind you, and and uh, and can argue the benefits of it. But what about you know the the organizations where you don't feel you have the support from from upwards? How do you how do you kind of fight those battles and, and make that change in a in a good way. What are some What are some good advices or some tactics okay. from you that uh, Yeah,
1: because yeah. I think that you know, there's the top down part where you have to have you know the CEO who's the ambassador and all of that, anyway, and I think that's a good starting point. But you're right; yeah. it's not every organization. Yeah, that you can't that. take that for granted. You can't take that for granted, but I think there are powerful bottom up strategies too. Yeah, yeah. And now, as a, you know, working as a consultant, I working with um, with Lego. I mean, they integrated sort of an inclusion element in their leadership platform, creating campfires and discussion formats and giving someone responsibility in a team to create these forums for sort of safe and trusted spaces, you know, sort of dialogues around behavior, et cetera. So you can start that on sort of as a a broader range cultural intervention without it, without, I mean, I think in their case, they most likely had CEO support for that, but nonetheless, I thought it was a really strong... intervention at the, at the team level, employee yeah. intervention, so yeah. you can do that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not either or, no. the, there are both elements and I think pockets of passionate people can impact an organization, yeah. so you can start with a small team. If you have a, a, a team or a leader somewhere in the organization that is really passionate about this topic, you can start something great. Yeah, and I think in my Nova time, I have experienced that you start with a manager who wants to do something, you make it really incredible, then other people want to try this thing or they want to buy yeah, it, yeah, and yeah. then suddenly you're out. You start a movement. You and start a movement. Yeah. So I think there's also those ways yeah. of doing it. Yeah. Start with a great idea and yeah. get a people, a bunch of people who will mobilize around yeah. that, and that does catch fire too. Yeah. So at this, so it's not just so. If, I mean, if. It might not. I mean, if you, of course, if you have a, a senior person who's actively against it, that's one thing. Yeah. But I think that that's not usually yeah. the case. Yeah. It's more there are many things on the agenda, or the agenda, or they don't quite know how to go about it. Yeah. Going back to this notion of allyship, yeah. rather than judging, you know, make, instead of rather than you know having your first instinct always be to judge, have it be to help, yeah. and assume the best in whether it's a CEO or your senior your manager, et cetera. Yeah assume yeah. the best intention in yeah. that individual and yeah. offer it to help them to find a meaningful yeah. way to do it yeah. and yeah. build the bridge rather than wait for someone to get enlightened. Because yeah. maybe by virtue of sort of helping them along the way or being the one that takes the first step, yeah. you actually create the movement yeah. that yeah. impacts that yeah. person.
0: And I think that's a really great uh, motivator to hear that it is possible and that you can drive that change by starting it yourself instead of just leaning back and waiting for a the management to to set the the direction and but you you take your own action and I think that at least in the Nordisk, uh, I don't know if it, if it was you who established the women in Nord in Nordis the the win uh, yeah. association that has a, had a really good time bringing uh, bringing DEI on the agenda mm-hmm. and bringing a lot of people together to discuss this and uh, and also I see a lot of companies where the Pride Parade has been something that has really changed the, the management view on the, on the importance on, on focus on that part of diversity as well and inclusion as well, which, is, which was mainly driven, driven by the, uh, the employees. So I think that uh, it's a good advice from you that we all need to kind of uh,
1: yeah, lean into
0: this and, and be an ally on this to, uh, to move the needle.
1: Yeah, and I want to make a, a point on that, because this, I'll, now I'll bring back to a personal story, which was when I first came to Denmark as an American, and I was in Aarhus, I was really disappointed that sort of no Danes spoke to me. Yeah. I went to, university started, and nobody asked me to, I sat alone at lunch, and nobody talked to me, and nobody took initiative on my behalf. It seemed so hard to meet the Danes. Yeah. And then I remember when I was really feeling sorry for myself, my husband <laughs> said to me, why are you feeling sorry for yourself? Yeah. Maybe you should feel sorry for us. Yeah. Because we don't know how to do it. Yeah. Because maybe if we knew how to take initiative yeah. on behalf of somebody we didn't know. Maybe you know, can teach us. Ex- it was exactly that he said rather than sit here and feel sorry for yourself, go out and take initiative because yeah. you're actually really good at it and maybe you'll help people. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And every time I took initiative, I was met with a positive response. Nobody ever said no. And I was thinking, "Okay, Realizing that you actually can utilize your difference to help, rather than, in my mind, oh, I'm the person who's new, here's the majority culture, they should do something for me. Rather than saying that I can actually impact something by utilizing my strength. And I think that mindset has helped me a lot also in thinking about WIN or other women's initiatives You can sit back and wait for something to happen or you can take positive action not be a victim not complain not point fingers but rather take a positive initiative that invites others to join and for me that's the allyship concept invite others to join and 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 connect to their better self to want to do something differently and i think for in you know i used to run women's leadership programs as well and that was always the message and how can you Generate the positive movement and not wait for something else to happen. Yeah. How can yeah. you take the first step yeah. and make it easy for someone else to, you know, to be the better version of themselves? Yeah. And yeah. I think that that when you take that mindset in D-DDI, DEI initiatives, you come far. Yeah,
0: I had a, a mentor who once said
1: to me, "You can either be, build
0: uh, go into the shelter or you can build the windmill." Yeah, yeah. and I think that's a really good example that uh, it's, a, it's a version of, drive. of that. Yeah. 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 All right, Anne-Lise, is there anything else, any stories or something that you want to share with the listeners today when we talk
1: about this important topic? I actually think we ended in the place that I, when I prepared to talk to you, I thought about yeah. was really this pos- the positive impasse starting with the positive impact that yeah. you yourself can make. Yeah. And I think that sometimes get lost in these big strategic initiatives. We forget about the power of the individual, yeah. to awake passion in others, to create connection, to give others the benefit of the doubt and build the bridge, yeah. or build the windmill, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, let's, let's conclude keep it, there. Yeah.
0: All right, thank you so much, Annelise for, yeah, first of all, being a great ambassador and, and pioneer, and for uh, you can say, uh, encouraging the rest of us to, to make a difference on this because we all have a responsibility to, to drive this change. And with that, we are concluding our uh, podcast on DEI. And it's been a great pleasure to have you with us today. Thank uh, you. Uh, pleasure and, to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you to uh, Inflow for uh, hosting this session. And of course, thank you for everyone who's uh, listening in with us today. Enjoy the rest of the day and uh, take care. See mm-hmm. you.